looking at 2.26. John chapter 17, verse 20 to 26. Reading, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity and let the world know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the reading of God's word. Let's, um, let's stand for prayer. Let's stand. Our gracious God, you are so glorious that the heavens cannot contain you. And yet you have assured us that you dwell with those who have a humble and contrite heart. And we pray that just as Jesus left the majestic glory of your heavenly throne to dwell among men, that you would come and dwell among us this morning by your Holy Spirit and through your word. We pray that your divine finger will help us as we try to read your word, that your finger will point with great skill into our hearts, applying your word to each one of us individually. And most of all, we pray that as your word both humbles us and lifts us up with a great sense of gospel grace and joy, that we might enjoy communion with you as dearly loved children enjoying communion with their Father. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please sit. 
Uh, I wonder when you first experienced real Christian unity. Um, If you're not yet a Christian this morning, well, maybe you haven't had that experience, but but if you are, I wonder when you did. Um, I think my first experience of of real Christian unity was at a church family holiday uh, back in the United Kingdom, uh, where there were about 150 of us spending a week together. And uh, for a whole week, we enjoyed a wonderful mix of excellent Bible teaching uh, with plenty of time for fellowship with one another in some stunning, beautiful surroundings. And I remember meeting people, uh, discovering that they were Christians, and having this sense that this person, this man, this woman, is my brother or my sister. So right now, I am with somebody else in the family. Now that, of course, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It was a supernatural gift of God. It was a very precious experience. And I might add that I've often had the same experience here on Sunday mornings. There have been many times when I've been overtaken by an awareness that in spite of our tremendous cultural differences, our different backgrounds and everything else, that I am with brothers and sisters. These are people that I'm going to be spending eternity with. Now I start with that this morning because real spiritual Christian unity is a very precious thing. And as Michael has said, that's what we're thinking about together this morning. It's a very important subject but it's also a much misunderstood subject. So I want us to understand this morning what real Christian unity is all about, and when we do, I hope we're going to be really enthusiastic about it. Let's get our bearings. For the last couple of weeks, we've been in John chapter 17, which is an astonishing part of the Bible, because in this chapter... We're listening to God speaking with God. It's the night before the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus has been speaking with his inner circle of of disciples, the 11, after Judas Iscariot left. And Jesus has been giving them final instructions all the way from chapter 13 in John through to the end of chapter 16. And then in chapter 17, Jesus turns from speaking to people about God and he speaks to God the Father about people. And in this tremendous prayer, we find that the longings of God the Son are exactly in tune with the longings and desires of God the Father. So it's a prayer that helps us to see right into the heart of Almighty God and to see the things that are of the utmost importance to him. So it means, doesn't it, if if you want to know who God is, what God is like, what God longs for, well, John 17 is a great place to be. And uh, these verses we're looking at this morning focus on Christian Unity. Now, so far, verses 1 to 5, 
we've seen Jesus praying for himself. And uh, in those five verses, he prays, you may remember, Father, glorify me. And we saw that that means that he's praying that the invisible Jesus, the, the veiled Jesus, would be seen and known for who he really is. How's that going to happen? Answer in verses 1 to 5, through the work of Jesus being our saviour and giving eternal life to men and women. So let's get that clear. The way that the invisible God becomes visible is by men and women throughout the world being given eternal life. And then in verses 6 to 19, the focus switches to the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, the 11. And now this morning, in verse 20, Jesus explicitly broadens the prayer. Uh, you can see in verse 20, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone, not just for the 11 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So, here's the thing. What we're seeing in this prayer is what the Lord Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago for us. It's remarkable. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ praying for you and praying for me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before any of us put our trust in Christ. I have three headings this morning. We're going to spend about 90% of the time on the first one. Here it is. Jesus prays for real Christian unity in this age. Verses 20 to 23. Now, he already prayed for unity back in verse 11. Just quickly glance back to the end of verse 11. You'll notice there that Jesus prays that they, that is the 11 disciples, may be one, in other words, may be united, as we, the Father and Son, are united. Now Jesus makes it clear that it's not just a prayer for the eleven, that they would not squabble after he's gone. It's a much bigger prayer than that. Because in verse 21, he prays that, notice this, all of them, that is to say, all believers in every age, may be one, middle of verse 22, that they may be one, Verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity. So that pretty obviously is the focus of Jesus' prayer. And because real Christian unity is important to Jesus, it must be important for us, and we need to know what it is. Jesus tells us three things about it. How it begins what it is, and what it shows. 
So first of all, how does it begin? Real Christian unity begins with faith in the authentic Jesus as preached by the apostles. Now, it's very easy for us to skip over this, but notice what Jesus prays in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That means Jesus is praying for unity between every man, woman, and child in Christian history who believes in him through the message of the apostles. I want us to try and draw out what that means practically. Practically what it means is that real Christian unity is for real Christians. And you might say, well, that's blindingly obvious, Simon. And yes, it is obvious. But it's so easy to miss. Real Christian unity is for men, women, and children who have put their trust in Jesus Christ personally. Now, what that means is that a person is not drawn into real Christian unity simply by being baptized uh, or by coming to church or by reading their Bible or by taking the Lord's Supper or by holding an office in the church of some kind. No, a person is only drawn into real Christian unity by believing in Jesus, by putting their trust in him. And it's those people and no one else who are included in the scope of the prayer that Jesus prays here. But I also want us to notice, and this is extremely important, that the Jesus we are to believe in is the Jesus of the apostles' message. Verse 20. For those who will believe in me through their message. And it's really important for us to focus on that because, you see, it's terribly easy, isn't it, for us to invent a Jesus to suit our own personal preferences or the preferences of the culture. We can so easily, can't we, create a Jesus who's a figment of our own imagination, who'll do what we want him to do, who will affirm all of our lifestyle choices, however ungodly they might be. But the authentic Jesus is the Jesus of the apostles' message. Now what that means is that there is both a subjective and an objective aspect to Christian unity. The objective aspect is that real Christian unity is based on the message of the apostles preserved for us in Scripture. They were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of the words and works of Jesus Christ. They were there, we were not. And for that reason, their message is objective and we are not at liberty to change it. But there's also a subjective aspect to real Christian unity. Because, you see, we ourselves must put our trust in Christ. Jesus says that, doesn't he, in verse 20. He speaks about those who will believe in me through their message. 
So that's where Christian unity begins. That's the basis of it, and it's not up for discussion. Second, real Christian unity consists in being drawn into the circle of love of the Father and the Son. Now, this is something special, something different. We haven't really spoken about this before, so fasten your seatbelts and stay with me. Look at the end of verse 11, where Jesus prays that they may be one as we are one. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So the first thing that we learn is that just as the Father and the Son love one another and are united with one another in their longing, in their desire, in their priorities, in their will, in exactly the same way Christian people should be united in their longing and their desire and their will. But it's more than that. Because we might think that the love of the Father and the Son is just kind of an analogy and that, um, you know, their love is the kind of love that we ought to aspire to. But look at uh, verse 21, if you will. Verse 21. Middle of the verse, Jesus prays, may they also be in us. And then again, in the middle of verse 22, that they may be one as we are one, verse 23, I in them and you in me. And then lastly, if you glance down to the middle of verse 26, that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Now, I don't know what you think about that. You know, your, your eyes might be sort of becoming a bit unfocused as you look at all of that. The language is strangely intimate, isn't it? What does Jesus actually mean? More than any other gospel writer, John paints a picture showing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit living, as it were, inside a circle of love. A circle of perfect love for one another. And then in John's account, the drama of God's rescue plan for mankind begins. And uh, God's rescue begins when that circle of love invades the darkness of our world. Because God the Father sends God the Son into our world on a rescue mission. Now let's have the picture on the screen, if we may please, Brenda. There it is. So the circle of God's love, let's just imagine it like that, and there you've got the cross in the middle. So the Father sends the Son, and the Son, out of his love for us, comes into our dark world, and that circle of God's love breaks in. And as the story continues, the son calls the first disciples to himself and they are drawn inside the circle of God's love. Then the son returns to the father after his death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension 
and he sends the Holy Spirit to be with his disciples. And what happens is that the work of men and women being drawn into the circle of God's love continues until finally the circle of God's love has expanded to the point where inside that circle are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and all real Christians in every age. And that's because God is love, and that is how the love of God overflows. Now that circle is the focus of the Building on the Rock workshops. The first one of those is coming up on March the 11th, where you are going to learn that it is absolutely vital for your eternal happiness, indeed for your wholeness as a human being, for you to be inside that circle. And it's only when you're drawn into that circle by putting your trust in Jesus that you can begin to experience the life-changing blessings that are now available to us in this age through the cross. So as you look at that picture, this is a good moment for me to ask you a couple of questions. Redemption, you can see it up there on the top. Do you know in your personal experience what it is to be redeemed from an empty way of life and brought into God's family? Do you know that? Restoration, next word round to the right. Do you know that you were once separated from God, cut off from all of his promises in Scripture, but that through the cross your relationship with God has been restored? Do you know that? Rescue. Do you know that you've been rescued from the penalty of sin and death? Because if you don't, it's high time you did. I could go on, but um, if you want to know more, you need to sign up for the BTR workshop. But this morning, the thing that I want us to see in Jesus' prayer is that real Christian unity comes from being drawn into that circle of love. It is a spiritual thing. It's not something that you and I can construct or manipulate So it's no use saying, well, you know, let's get together, um, sit around a table, draw up a business plan, and uh, see if we human beings can manufacture Christian unity. Because that misses the point altogether. Because real Christian unity is given by God to every man, woman, and child who is drawn into the circle of God's love. That is what Christian unity consists in. It is a spiritual thing. Let me try another illustration just to help us get hold of this. So just sort of imagine that circle uh, being shrunk to a dot. uh, And imagine it as the hub of a wheel and there are spokes going off the hub of the wheel. And uh, if I'm on one spoke of the wheel over here, and you're on another spoke of the wheel over there, well, we're a long way away from each other, aren't we? But you see, if we get drawn 
right into the centre of the wheel, to the hub, where the love of God the Father and the love of God the Son can be found. Well, we are drawn to one another and we are one, aren't we? Do you see? That's what Christian unity is. And therefore, point number three, real Christian unity is evidence to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is God the Son, sent into the world by God the Father. Jesus says that twice. Just look at this with me. Verse 21, Jesus prays that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says it again in verse 23 in case we weren't listening. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So can you see that the logic of this is that real Christian unity is actually a miracle and I want us to try and understand that real Christian unity is evidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. You see, it's not a natural thing for a group of people like us gathered here this morning to be united in love and patience and forbearance and forgiveness and sacrificial concern for one another, as we were thinking about a bit earlier in the service. That does not happen naturally. What happens naturally in the world is this. Human society naturally operates by like gathering with like. Isn't that right? You know, one race gathers with their own race. Other races gather with their own races. And before you know it, you've got the racism that we see all around the world today. People from one culture gather with other people from the same culture. People from one club or interest group gather with others from the same club or interest group, and so on. So can you see that by nature, people are drawn to one another by shared self-interest? That's what naturally happens in the world. But you see, if in that kind of a world, there suddenly appears a society with people from different languages, tribes, cultures, and so on, being united in that society, well, the world looks at that and says, do you know what, that's really rather odd. That's what ought to be happening in church, brothers and sisters. People ought to look at St. Barnabas and say, well, you know, what a very strange bunch of people. I can't really imagine what they see in one another and why they're united in love in this most extraordinary way. By contrast, if they look at us and say, oh, well, it's just another club, you know, like the rugby club or the cricket club or whatever it is, well, the world isn't going to be in the least bit interested, is it? The world will say, you know, they like religion, we like cricket, so what? But if there is real Christian unity, 
with men and women who by nature would not be united, but who are actually united in a fellowship of love, the world says, well, that's different. I wonder what's going on there. Now that, my dear friends, is why real Christian unity is so very important. It's a miracle. It's a supernatural work of God. And it is not a humanly constructed phenomenon. Now, of course, it's never going to be perfect. Uh, Because of the sinful nature, we're going to spoil it. We'll spoil it by our selfishness. Uh, We'll spoil it by quarreling about secondary things. And we'll spoil it simply because we're sinners. But real Christians recognize other real Christians all over the world. And even though our unity is never going to be perfect, nevertheless it is real. And when you experience it, you know it's real. And we ought to be really enthusiastic about it. St Barnabas ought to be a visual aid that proves that Jesus is who we always claim to be and a sign that the living God is present in this world. Well, that's my main point, and I have two points to finish off in five minutes, so here we go. Second point. Jesus prays for the overflowing love of God to reach its fulfillment in final Christian unity. Final Christian unity. Verse 24. So verse 23, Jesus has prayed that believers will be brought to complete unity... Now, what does he say in verse 24? He prays, Father, I want those that you've given me, that is, all believers in every age, to be with me where I am, and he's talking about where he's going to be after his ascension, and to see my glory, the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Now, what I want us to get hold of very briefly here is that when Jesus prayed back in verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began, that is not an introspective prayer. Jesus is not saying, you know, Father, I've had enough of the world. All these people on planet Earth, they're horrible. Please, will you take me back to heaven? We'll close the doors and shut everybody out. He's not doing that. No, we need to remember that Um, the great truth at the heart of the universe is the love of God, and that love is an overflowing love. Um, It's the the love of the Father for the Son from all eternity. It overflows. It first overflowed when God created the world. God didn't need to create the world. He was perfectly self-sufficient from all eternity. But if you read the account in Genesis 1 and 2, you you find that he created a world that was good, very good. Why? Because his love overflowed in doing it. And then it overflowed again, didn't it? In the redemption of a lost world. And that overflow continues today. And Jesus looks forward to the the day when that overflow reaches fulfillment 
And every Christian believer throughout the ages will be drawn into that circle of love forever. And then final point. Jesus promises in this age today to continue to make the Father known. I think this is rather surprising if you read the story straight. It's in verses 25 and 26. Uh, There's much there that we've already seen. We won't cover the ground again, but there is one surprise. Verse 25, Righteous Father, Jesus prays, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. So, just think about that. This this is a promise from the Lord Jesus the night before his crucifixion that the work that he's been absolutely delighted to do, which is making God the Father known, he's going to continue to do. It's what he's already been doing with Peter, James, John and Andrew and all the rest, opening the eyes of their heart to the Father. Now that is the work Jesus delights to do. And here we have a promise that he's going to carry on doing it. And it's what, of course, he's been doing by his Holy Spirit for the last 2,000 years. He did it for me back in 1989. He made the Father known to me Before that time, I knew about God, but I didn't know him personally. But in 1989, Jesus made the Father known to me. And I'm sure that many of you here this morning could tell your story of how Jesus Christ made the Father known to you. And my final thought for you this morning is, I want us to remember that Jesus did that not so that we might be individual, solitary Christians, you know, just Jesus and me. He did it so that we might live together in diverse, multicultural fellowships with other people who've also been drawn into the circle of God's love. So that together we might be living proof that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Well, that's more than enough to think about. Let's be quiet for a moment and I'll pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in wonder at your overflowing love and your longing that we know will be fulfilled that those to whom you've made the Father known will be there with you in the new heavens and the new earth because they are absolutely secure in the circle of your love. And we pray that our fellowship at St. Barnabas might be a visible expression of that longing, even in this present age. 
We ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we sometimes obscure that unity through our foolishness and sin. And we pray that you would help us to express that God-given unity in our lives together. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.